for that missions moment, McKinsey. And we love um, hearing about what ministries are going on around our community and, and what our church is doing in missions. And it always sets the stage for me to lead us into a time of offertory prayer. And we do want to pray for WizKids. Uh, this is a significant ministry. I remember months ago when we started talking about doing this, we realized that one of the most significant ways that we can impact our community is to uh, help kids who are struggling uh, with their reading skills. Um, when, when children fall behind in reading, then that tends to be one of those markers that sets them behind in life. And if we as a church can put our best efforts out there in reaching out into our community with uh, this reading program and tutoring, then we feel like that this is a significant way for us to have an impact. And, and we can do it with the love of Christ and a kind of gospel-centered uh, biblical approach. And, and so we're very uh, committed to this ministry. And it's just launched. And when we first realized that we were not going to be able to do it in person, we were worried that it may not succeed in this way. And yet it has succeeded beyond our hope. And uh, so praise the Lord for that. Um, we do believe that we are just now getting started in this. And I know that there are many of you who will want to be involved in this um, as, as it becomes more of an in-person kind of ministry. And so let's pray for the continued success and prospering of the uh, WizKids ministry in our church as we pray for our offering this morning. And just as a reminder to all of you, the way that we're giving uh, these days during this pandemic season mostly is through our online giving councilroad.church slash give. Um, follow all the instructions. And then if you would like to give uh, via text message, which is a very simple way to give, 405-652-0607. 405-652-0607. And just type in the words give and then follow the directions and how you can, how you can give in that way. Thank you so much for your faithfulness and, um, you know, we're here at the year end, and um, the, the giving that we receive uh, in the month of December at the end of the year is very significant to us as a church um, for our annual ministries. And um, so um, please remember your church as you're thinking about your year-end giving. And uh, so, uh, again, just want to tell you how grateful we are for your faithfulness to our church during this very challenging time. So let's pray for our morning offering. Lord God, we are so grateful for the way that you are continuing to use our church through ministries like WizKids. <clears throat> Even during this challenging pandemic season, we pray for your continued blessing of this ministry. We pray for our church. We pray for our community. We pray for our city. We pray for healing. We pray for the end of this pandemic. And, and Lord, even during these difficult times, we pray that you would use your church effectively to reach out into our community, to love all people to Christ. Uh, may our community sense and know and feel and experience our love, our witness, um, as we seek to be a light in the darkness. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, church family, before we get into our passage this morning, I do want to make a, uh, a, an announcement about what's coming up in our church um, because um, we've got some changes coming up in the next few weeks. Um, beginning next Sunday, we're going to start working in this room on a new lighting system. Um, 
And uh, the best way I, I know to tell you how important it is for us to do this is just by simply asking you to look up right now. Uh, maybe you've not ever done that. You know, we typically don't like for you to look up. But um, if you'll just look up, um, notice how many lights are not on in this room. We have all of our lights on right now. Um, and if you'll just look closely, you'll see that there are several lights that are not working. Um, this has been a problem in this room for a long time, and we have frankly been putting off this work because it's expensive. Um, it requires a complete rewiring um, of our system. Um, there's a lot of uh, electrical work that needs to be done in order to accomplish this. Um, all of those light fixtures that you see that are not working have to be replaced. In fact, all of them are going to be replaced. We're putting in a new modern LED system in here. Uh, this is something, as I said, that we put off for a long time because it really, frankly, is very expensive to do. Uh, you may be wondering why we didn't do this when we did our major remodel. Well, the answer to that is that we were trying to, to, to do our remodel as reasonably as we could, and that this was just one of those things that we knew that we could put off. And so we did. And so we've been, uh, over the past several months, we have been putting back some money so that we could do this, and we now have enough money and uh, since we're in this pandemic season anyway, it just seemed to make sense to us to go ahead and pull the trigger and do this while we can. And, and so beginning next Sunday, this room is going, to be, uh, uh, is going to be in full lighting remodel mode. Um, they're going to be bringing in some lifts, um, taking out some chairs in order to get those lifts in here. And, and they're going to start that remodel. And uh, so that's going to take about five weeks. So we cannot meet in this room for five weeks beginning next Sunday. And so here's how we are going to handle that. Next Sunday and the Sunday after, December 27 and January 3rd, we are going to be online worship only. So nobody in the building, December 27 and January 3rd. Um, providentially, um, here in the city, the... Uh, cases of uh, COVID-19 are increasing, spiking. And so, you know, for keeping everyone safe and, uh, and being as cautious as we can, it, it actually is probably a good thing that for the next two weeks, um, we're not going to be meeting in the building, but all of us are going to be watching online. And uh, so we are going to have online worship only those two Sundays, Jan uh, December 27th and January 3rd. And then the next three Sundays after that, January 10, January 17, January 24, we're going to be meeting in the chapel and in the cube in two simultaneous worship services, 9 o'clock a.m. and 10.30. The two worship services that will be in the chapel will be uh, the classic worship led by Norman Beheimer and our early worship, uh, worship team. And then in the cube at 9 o'clock a.m. and at 10.30, we will have our modern worship led by Colin and the worship band. And uh, so you choose whichever of those four worship services you want to come to, either the two in the chapel that will be classic worship or the two in the cube, which will be modern worship. And we would only ask that you stagger whichever service you're going to go to um, based on your last name, uh, A through M, uh, early worship, N through Z, late worship. Now, 
you know, we're not, that's not a strict rule. We're just making that suggestion to you. We're not going to have people at the door making sure you've got the right last name in order to come into the worship service. We're just making that suggestion so that we can be responsible and socially distanced in all of those worship services. And so that's, again, that's January 10, 17, 24, in those two venues, the chapel and the cube. And then January 31st, we're all going to be back here in this room, and we're going to have a new lighting system. Uh, praise the Lord for that. And, uh, and we'll be in our regular schedule, January 31st. Two worship services, all of our connection groups, all of our children's ministries. Everything starts back January 31st. And um, so praise the Lord for that. But there are a lot of things going on in the next several weeks, uh, which is why I'm taking so much time in this worship service to explain all of that to you. And hopefully everyone will get the message. Inevitably, whenever we do something like this, even though we announce it over and over again and do all that we can, uh, that we think that we can in order to communicate it, inevitably people don't get the message. And um, so just want to make sure everyone understands what's going to be going on in the next few weeks. All of it is good. Um, praise the Lord that we have the resources. Um, and that is because of your faithfulness. And praise the Lord that uh, even during a challenging time, something good is coming out of that. And um, so we're, we're very um, excited about these changes that are being made in, in our room because it will help us with our worship. Um, you know, there are dark spots in this room. Even as I look out here in the audience, there are places where, where it is dark, where I just literally can't see people. Like, for, for instance, this middle section here. Those of you who are in the middle section may have noticed that you're sitting in, the dark, in a dark area of the room um, and uh, we do get complaints from that from people from time to time. They can't read their Bibles, you know, because we don't have correct lighting up in the balcony. We have very poor lighting up there as well. Um, you know, it was funny, um, several months ago, I was making fun of Micah, because when Micah teaches, he looks over here, and then he looks over here, and then he looks over here, and he looks over here, and I said, Micah, what is it that you have against the people who are in the center of the room? You never look at the people in the middle. And he said, I can't see them. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's because we have such poor lighting in here. And um, so I, I'm, really, I'm really thrilled that we're going to have um, better lighting in this room. It'll help all of us um, as we learn together and as we worship together. All right. So church family, we are in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 7, and then I want us to read John chapter 1, verse 14. Here we are on the Sunday before Christmas, and my assignment to you this morning uh, is, to, is to preach the Christmas story. And every year, you know, the Sunday before Christmas, we always like to read one of the passages that, uh, is, that is highlights uh, the Christmas story. We, li we like to read either about, um, you know, what happened that first nativity. We like to read maybe John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are so many various Christmas themes that we can read about in the Scriptures. And yet, this year is unusual because we're all reading through the Scripture together, and so we're teaching each, each week based on the readings from this past week. And so here we are now uh, on the Sunday before Christmas, and our readings have been in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews. And so how am I now to bring to you a Christmas message from the book of Hebrews? Well, it turns out 
that one of the most profound passages of Scripture related to the Christmas story is found in the book of Hebrews. And it's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Chances are you have never heard a Christmas sermon on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 before, but you're going to hear one today. So let's all stand together and read this passage, Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, and then I want to skip over to John chapter 1, verses, verse 14. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. There are three points that I want to bring to us this morning that help us to understand the meaning of this, of this text and how it points, us, it points us to the Christmas story. The first point is this. A major theme of the Old Testament is that we need sacrifice as a payment for our sins. One of the major themes all throughout the biblical text is that we need sacrifice in order to, to pay for in order to substitute for our sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, for instance, says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what the Scripture teaches is that in order for there to be, in in the biblical theological word for it, is propitiation. In order for there to be propitiation for your sin, payment for your sin, substitute for your sin, there has to be some kind of sacrifice. Now, a modern person who hears that might say that that seems really primitive and obscene to imply that the only way that you're going to be able to have payment for your sin is for there to be some kind of a sacrifice. In fact, you know, when I talk to people about Christianity, this is one of the things that people bring up to me. You know, do you really believe as a Christian that someone has to die in order for sins to be paid for? It just, it just seems nonsensical. But I would point out that all of us, all of us, if we think about it, instinctively know that there has to be some kind of sacrifice whenever there is forgiveness. When you forgive someone, you are, in a sense, absorbing the guilt or absorbing the payment in order to forgive that person. I, I remember many years ago when I was in my when I was in my twenties, Terry and I were first married. Uh, we were at a friend's house and and the guys were upstairs kind of messing around. Uh, we were we were watching football and, and playing Nerf football. 
And, uh, and, and I went out for a pass, and uh, I tripped, and I fell into the wall of my buddy's house, and I, and I put a big dent in the sheetrock. Uh, imagine me trying to explain to my wife that I was playing Nerf football, and I destroyed my buddy's wall. And, and so, you know, we all kind of stared at the wall just kind of in amazement. I can't believe that that just happened. But then I realized, I'm going to have to pay for that. I can't just say, sorry about your wall, and then leave. You know, I mean, this was, this was a good friend, and even if it wasn't a good friend, I still would have to make it good, you know. And, and so I told him, I said, um, I'm going to take care of this. And he, he insisted that I not. He said, no, don't worry about it. I'll, t- I'll pay for it. No big deal. You know, after all, it was a bad pass, you know. Um, I said, no, I'm going to pay for it. And, and so, sure enough, I had to pay for a sheetrock crew to come and cut out the sheetrock and, and put in new sheetrock. Had to pay for a painter to come and paint the wall and restore everything. All of that cost, all of that expense was on me. Now, forgiveness was made. Everything was put back to order. Everything was good. Damage was done. It was brought back into order. And yet, in order for that restoration to take place, there there was an expense. I had to, in other words, absorb the expense of reconciling that situation. So forgiveness was given, and yet with a cost. Now, the, the reason that I tell that story is because it illustrates what happens every time someone forgives someone else. Every time forgiveness is given, it always comes with some sort of sacrifice. It always comes with some sort of payment. Okay. So, here's the point that I'm making. We all instinctively know that in order for there to be forgiveness, there has to be payment. And, and, and if that's true in the temporal sense, it is exponentially more true in the eternal sense. Where there's cosmic sin against God Almighty then there has to be cosmic payment. And so in that sense, sacrifice, sacrifice is, is reasonable and understandable. And, and what, what God has done in his word, beginning in the Old Testament, is to say that in order for sin to be, to be forgiven, there has to be sacrifice. And so you have the entire Levitical law, which sets up a very complicated sacrificial system. For instance, Leviticus chapter 4 gives explanation of all of the various kinds of sin offerings, whether you sacrifice bulls, whether you sacrifice uh, female uh, goats, you know, whatever the sacrifice might be, if it's a small animal. The, the, Le- the Levitical law sets up all kinds of festivals, all kinds of different uh, sin offerings and guilt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then there's annual feasts and festivals in which there's instructions on on the the kinds of sacrifices that need to be made. Yom Kippur is the one day of the year in which the high priest makes a sacrifice for all of the sins of Israel. And so there are lots of different laws within the Levitical text about how you make sacrifices. And the result of this was that during that sacrificial system in the Old Testament, Thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of sacrifices were made in the temple every single day. In fact, the famous Jewish historian Josephus said that in one day in in Jerusalem, in one single day, 
there was 1.2 million sacrifices made at the temple in Jerusalem. Now that just, that seems almost impossible to think about, to have that many sacrifices in one place. In fact, you might even accuse Josephus of using hyperbole. You know, maybe he was exaggerating in order to make a point. But a few years ago, a few years ago, archaeologists discovered a landfill in the back of the ancient temple in Jerusalem that dated back to the first century. And in that landfill, they found piles and piles and piles of animal bones. And what they once thought of as being hyperbole now kind of made sense. It, it, it is actually true. It is actually true that uh, in the first century, in the, in, the, in, the ancient, in ancient Jerusalem, in the early centuries, that tens of thousands of animals were sacrificed today at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I want you just to imagine for a moment what that must have been like. And, and the reason that I want your mind to kind of go there is I want all of us to understand what the writer of Hebrews was saying to his readers about these sacrifices and why it would have made perfect sense to them. Imagine what it must have been like to live in that sacrificial system where you are having to constantly go to the temple and make some kind of an animal sacrifice. You're walking toward the temple in Jerusalem and the first thing that strikes you, I would imagine, I would imagine the first thing that strikes you is probably the smell. Think of the smell of hundreds of thousands of animals being slaughtered every single day. Now, those of us who've lived in Oklahoma City our whole lives can really kind of get a sense of what that smell must have been like. Uh, I was born uh, here in Oklahoma City back in 1960, grew up in the 60s, 70s in, in Oklahoma City, and I clearly remember the smell of the packing houses in Oklahoma City during that time. The meat packing companies, two major meat packing companies operated in Oklahoma City back in the, uh, uh, up until 1992, I believe, is when the, the last one finally shut down. So I, I clearly remember driving down I-40 uh, during a certain time of the day and smelling the smell of the stockyards here in Oklahoma City because of all of the animals that were being uh, processed. In fact, I remember one time uh, I, was, I was driving my little nephew, uh, Kevin. I call him my little nephew. He's in his 40s now. But anyway, um, uh, we, I, I was driving him across town on I-40, and we were going past the stockyards. And, uh, and, that, and it, was the, it was the right time of day for that heavy smell of the meatpacking processing company. Um, and, and, and the smell was really strong. And so we're driving, and I'm conscious of the fact that my nephew is staring at me. So I look over at him. He's sitting in the seat next to me. He's probably six, seven years old, and he's just staring at me. And I look back at him, and he can, he's continued to stare at me. I, I said, what's wrong, Kevin? 
And he said, you're, you're gross, Uncle Rick. <laughs> it took me a minute to realize what he was saying, and then I realized what he was implying, and I said, Kevin, that is the smell of a thousand cows. That's not me. You know? <laughs> he wasn't convinced. So those of us who grew up in Oklahoma City clearly remember, clearly remember what that smell was like. And I would imagine that if you lived in those uh, ancient times, you would, that would be the first sense that you would get as you're walking toward Jerusalem. But you would also have to be thinking to yourself, how long is this going to go on? How long must I come to this temple to make this sacrifice? Surely there's a better way. Some of the accounts of what it was like back in ancient Jerusalem during that time said that, that the blood from those animals literally, flo literally flowed out the back of the temple. So those families that are moving toward the temple during this time had to have been thinking to themselves, there must be a better way. This, this is not, in other words, this is not a complete system. This, this, there, there's something incomplete. There's something incoherent. There, there's something missing in this system. Because every time I make this sacrifice, I realize I'm going to have to come back and do this again. I'm going to have to continue this over and over and over and over again. And, and so the first point that I want to make here is that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a constant theme. Um, one of the commentator, commentators I read, Barclay, put it like this. He said there was a kind of priestly treadmill of sacrifice. There was no end to this process, and it left men and women still conscious of their sin and alienated from God. So, that's the first thing I want us to think about as we look at this passage in which the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm chapter 40 in the Septuagint, not in the Hebrew translation, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, which says, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Which leads me to the second point, and that is another recurring theme, another recurring reprise of the Old Testament was that God does not desire sacrifices. Over and over again, you read in the Old Testament, just as the writer of Hebrews here says, and, and quotes the psalm, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. Now, how can that be? How can it be that God says, I do not desire sacrifices, and yet he was the one who established them? He was the one who brought about those elaborate laws of the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and the fellowship offerings and all the festivals in which offerings were made. Why would it be that God, on the one hand, would tell people that they needed to, to make sacrifices, but on the other hand, he would say, this is not something that I desire? Well, a couple of things here. First of all, most importantly, those sacrifices did not actually bring about the restitution for sin. They, they were not, in other words, they were not complete. 
in other words, when God established the sacrificial system, he was not setting up a works-based religion. In other words, in, in order for you to, to, to have fellowship with me, you must do these things, and that's what makes... Uh, uh, that's what satisfies my desire for fellowship with you. The, the, and, and here's what I really want all of us to understand. The sacrifice itself was a kind of preaching. The sacrifice itself was preaching something to the person who was making the sacrifice. So you take this animal to the altar and you sacrifice that animal... And, and, and what that is preaching to you is this animal is being destroyed, but I'm not. This animal is being burnt, I'm not. My sin is going on to that animal in a sense, but that is pointing to a day when a complete sacrifice will be made. So the sacrifice itself was preaching to you. It was saying something to you is pointing you to something greater. It was pointing you to something bigger. Look again at the text, Hebrews 10, 5. When Christ came to the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Now, church, let me ask you this question. Who's the me in this passage? Who's the me? Well, of course, the answer to that question is that it has to be the second person of the Trinity. It is the Son talking to the Father. We have these beautiful psalms in which parts of the Trinity are talking to one another. Psalm chapter 2 is an example of God, the Father, talking to Jesus, the Son. In this passage, we have an example of the Son talking to the Father, and the Son says to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, Keep in mind, psalms are always written in the parallel. So the first part of the psalm has something to do with the second part of the psalm. So there has to be a connection between sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What does it mean that sacrifices you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me? It can only mean that the reason that the sacrifices and the offerings you did not desire is because you knew that you were going to prepare a body. And that that body prepared for me was going to be the sacrifice. That body that you prepared for me, that was going to be the sacrifice. The sacrifice that all of the other sacrifices, all of the other offerings, the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of offerings that were made at the temple, all of those were pointing to something And the reason that God did not desire those is because he was preparing a body. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? Listen, listen. What that means is that that body prepared for Jesus in the womb of Mary was to be a sacrifice.
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that Word became flesh. And that flesh was to be a sacrifice. God needed the ultimate sacrifice, and he needed that sacrifice to be flesh. He needed that sacrifice to be flesh and blood. In other words, the reason that Jesus came was not just so that he could have fellowship with you and me, so that he could live among men and women, but most importantly, the reason that he came is because he was to be a sacrifice. And that that sacrifice had to be a body. And that that body, one day, would sacrifice himself on the cross. Human flesh. And that that body would bleed for you and me. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body, the Son says to the Father, you prepared for me. Listen, the beauty and wonder and majesty of the Christmas story is not just that a baby was born in a manger. The beauty and wonder and splendor of that story is that that baby was born in a manger so that he would fulfill all of the sacrificial system so that once and for all, that sacrifice would satisfy the justice of God so that you and I could have perfect fellowship with God. And that is why the angels sang, I bring you good news of great joy, which will bring joy to all of the people. Point number three. Therefore, the sacrifice of Jesus has ended all other sacrifices. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a familiar passage. For our sake he made, sin to be sin, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin Jesus, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Does that mean that Jesus became a sinner? I mean, this, that, that, that verse seems to make no sense. Why would Jesus need to be my sin? I'm pretty good at doing that myself. I don't need Jesus to do that for me. What does it mean that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin? Well, the answer to that is that the Greek word there, sin, is the, is the word harmatia, which means literally, are you ready for it? It literally means sin offering. Sin offering. He who knew no sin became sin offering for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire because you prepared a body for me. 
And that body would become the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. Listen, church, the reason I think that this is an important passage for all of us to remember is that from now on, I hope that every time you see that baby in a manger, you are thinking about what that baby represents. That the second part of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, says to the Father, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And that that body was prepared in the womb of Mary so that one day that child would grow up and he would lay down his life for you and me because of his great love for you. And, and, and so now that we have this kind of theological and biblical understanding of, of who that baby was, I also want to call your attention to the fact that that baby was born in a manger. And maybe the significance of that has never really hit you. But where is Bethlehem? Bethlehem is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And, and what is going on in Bethlehem? Well, there are a lot of animals being raised in Bethlehem. There are a lot of barns in Bethlehem. You might even say thousands, tens of thousands of animals being raised in and around Bethlehem. And incidentally, there are a lot of shepherds in the field. Why? Because those shepherds are raising animals. So let's just ask ourselves the question, why are there so many animals being raised in Bethlehem? Why was it that the only place that Mary and Martha could find a place to sleep was in a barn on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. The answer to that question is because there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of animals being raised to make sacrifice in the temple. So when we think of it in that light, it makes perfect sense that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second part of the Trinity, would have been born in a manger among the animals who were prepared for sacrifice. And that the shepherds out in the field at night tending to their flocks are preparing animals who will be sacrificed and the angels come to them and say, we bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be glad tidings for all of the people the good news that the one true sacrifice that will fulfill every other sacrifice has come. And that is the meaning of Christmas. Not just that a baby was born, but that that baby was born to take away the sins of the world. And that's what makes the Christmas story so very personal to every one of us. Let's pray together. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, 
till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Jesus, the Lamb of God, born to take away our sin. Lord God, that is a truth that is overwhelming. The more we think on it, the more our hearts are changed. How we rejoice. How we love you. Praise be to God.